Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, just a word of warning. Oh, you're a mess, aren't you? I'm not very tall either. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. Good afternoon and welcome to Cambridge 105 Radio. It's a new year, it's a new decade and it's a brand new Bums on Seats. But never mind, it will still be exactly the same shtick as it's always been. I'm Emma Marchant in the host chair for the first time. It's taken me 11 years for them to allow me to come over here. But I'm joined by a plethora of voices today. So, in alphabetical order, so no one gets upset, we have Vicky Ayres. Hello. Bridget Bradshaw. Hi there. Ashley Capaldi. Hi. Henry Dow. Hello. Rowan Lamb. Howdy. Lorcan O'Neill. Hello. Yossi Osman. Hello. And last but by no means least, Alistair Ryder. Good afternoon. So that is that feels like it's an ensemble cast, which is, you know, ready for almost as good as the new Guy Ritchie film, which coincidentally is one of the ones that we're going to be reviewing today. His return to the crime caper in The Gentleman. We'll be looking at the already fated World War One drama nineteen seventeen from Sam Mendes, and also Taika Waititi's anti-hate satire, Jojo Rabbit. But let us start with another war and the third big screen adaptation of Meg, Joe, Beth and Amy March's story. I'm working on a novel. It is a story of my life and my sister's. Make it short and spicy. And if the main character is a girl, make sure she's married by the end. Ow, Joe! I want to be an artist in Rome and be the best painter in the world. That's what you want too, isn't it, Joe, to be a famous writer? Yes, but it sounds so crass when she says it. My girls have a way of getting into mischief. Well, so do I. This is Meg, Amy, Beth, and Joe. I intend to make my own way in the world. No one makes their own way. Least of all a woman. You'll need to marry well. But you are not married, aren't you? Well, that's because I'm rich. Joe, would you like to dance with me? I can't because I scorched my dress. And Meg told me to keep still so no one would see it. I have an idea of how we can manage. Joe is a lost cause. So you are your family's hope now. I believe we have some power over who we love. It isn't something that just happens to a person. I think the poets might disagree. Louisa M. Olcott's 1868 story of the March sisters, left with their mommy to grow up while their father is fighting the Civil War, has proved evergreen for adaptations. From Elizabeth Taylor and Janet Leigh to 1949, to Winona Ryder and Susan Sarandon in 1994, and even just last year on the BBC, Little Women, Little Women has been a constant in our... Um, popular culture echelon, and now it's Greta Gerwig's turn to put a fresh spin on this beloved classic. Starring Emma Watson, Saoirse Ronan and Florence Pugh, along with the currently ubiquitous Laura Dern as Marmy, Little Women opened on Boxing Day, but is still, as they say, packing them in. And we have four wonderful opinions to have. So we'll start with Bridget. With such a well-known text, did you feel that Greta Gerwig could and did bring anything new to the table with this? 
Yes, I had a fantastic time in this film. It was really enjoyable. Uh, one of the things she's done is broken the narrative right up. So you've got a timeline that's going on in their teenage years and, and it starts with them seven years later as adults. So that's a great way to get an introduction to the characters and the difficulties they're going through at this time in their life. Do they, do they want to go dancing or do they want to finish the novel? Are they engaged to the right man? Are they able to buy the beautiful frocks they want or do they have to um, keep their purse strings tight because their family's poor? And these are things that we can relate to. I found it a, a lot more easy to get into the film right from the start with these people um, instead of the more traditional linear narrative where you have to spend a lot of time with teenagers who can sometimes be extremely annoying, Amy. So annoying. But um, getting to see her as a grown-up you get the constant comparisons between their older selves and their younger selves and you get to see how their characters develop throughout and it was, even though it went back and forth a lot, it always felt like it was moving forward. I don't know how she did it, but she really managed to make the emotional beats land and land and land. Oh, wonderful. Well, I always say I, Amy's one of the more interesting characters in it to me anyway. Henry, is Little Women something... Was it new to you as a text? Do you know the book? Yeah, so I'd never read the book and I'd never seen any of the previous adaptations so the thing that kind of brought me to the film was Gerwig's like you know all of her films that she's before and Lady Bird was such a triumph in my eyes so I wanted to see it for those reasons and uh, I did really like this film but I thought there are a few things that took a while for it to settle okay. so actually it took me a few days to think about what it was that didn't make me love the film as much as I loved Lady Bird and I think it comes back and I really thought the film was intelligent and I completely agree with uh, the narrative interplay, having the contrast between the young and the old. It kept the film moving and it kept these characters fresh all the time. But I feel like the film kind of, it lacked uh, an element of risk to it. So the basic premise of the film, I suppose, is they have to marry well. That's the overlooming risk, is that this period of time in history, you have to marry well, otherwise you could end up, you know, poor and there's this contrast with this family in the woods that haven't got a man that's married well so they that kind of loses contrast but the tone of the film is very happy the whole way through so you don't really get that element of dipping into the risk this is what happens if they choose like their passions over perhaps as like a well a well chosen suitor well i guess i mean it is based obviously on a much beloved particularly in America, I think, you know, this is this is a book that, I mean, I must have read this book about 15 times, I suppose, when I was growing up, and it is, after all, a young adult book, so I don't think it tries to dip too dark, too, you know, too deeply into the darkness behind it, so maybe it was staying faithful to that. Yossi, um, obviously, Saoirse Ronan came off the back of the critically lauded Lady Bird with Greta Gerwig, and we also have Florence Pugh, who is, as they say, extremely hot right now, and Emma Watson, um, and, of course, Tim Timothée Chalamet as well, playing Laurie. <clears throat> Do you think that this film belonged to anyone in particular? Do you think the cast worked well together, or was there a standout performance for you? Um, interesting question. I, th I think, for me, uh, what is a testament to Greta Gerwig is that... For me, it was an ensemble piece. I've seen adaptations of Little Women where somebody stands out. And yes, Shersha Ronan, great. Florence Pugh, I just love her in anything she does. I think she's a really fantastic actor. I, I'm always excited to see her on screen. And she was brilliant in this as Amy. But um, what I liked about Little Women, which I didn't think I was going to like, was that, that with Gerwig's artistry and her passion for these characters and this story... 
I felt everything with them. They felt like my family, all four of them. And and, and I really, really enjoyed that. And I think that's that's down to them as actors, but I also think it's really actually down to Greta Gerwig's direction. And, and her, you can see how much she's put into this and so I kind of want to say that Florence Pugh would be my standout but then that's not true she's not I thought they were all even Emma Watson who I'm a bit "Mm," whenever I see her in anything like she was tolerable so you know it was Meg is yeah Meg is yeah Meg as a role is what's what's her biggest thing when she gets all kind of you know gussied up yeah sure I mean it was suited it was you know it was it was very well done so um uh, credit to all of them really Vicky I know you are a because you self-admitted huge Greta Gerwig fangirl now I didn't go and see this because I must admit that the BBC adaptation that was on only a year ago with Maya Hawke as Joe I loved that mm. and I kind of felt a little bit like do I need another little women in my life it feels like this has come along really quickly what you obviously went in as an enormous fan of Greta Gerwig did it live up to your expectations and why should I go and see it uh, did it live up to my expectations? It did. Um, I was definitely sat there. Oh my God, for a straight hour crying or so. But um, essentially, I think like, do I think I think it lacked something for me that Ladybird um, brought to the table. And I think it was because the pacing of this film was so quick. In a sense, it was like um, it was made specifically for people that knew the Little Women characters. It was people that didn't need to delve too deep into them, people that already knew who Joe March was. I didn't. But I think what Greta Gerwig did is bought her best cast, which was Saoirse Ronan and Timothy Chalamet. And I think people, young people that haven't like gotten, haven't grown up with Little Women yet, will now get a chance to do that. And I think that's why it's it's brought something else to the generation. And I, it did live up sub subpar to my standards. I wouldn't say the highest of them. Okay, so Bridget, I'm just going to finish with you very quickly. Obviously, there was a big furore about the fact that this wasn't nominated at the Golden Globes and hasn't been nominated for BAFTAs either. And there's been some talk, obviously, about female directors being underrepresented again. Do you think that's a fair reflection of this film? though or would you put it in your top five films um yeah definitely make it into my top 10 there's there's a line in in the film that one character says to the other i think joe's having having it on meg because meg's just gone boring and like married um and just because my dreams are different than yours doesn't mean they're not important yeah and comparing little women and a massive spectacular war epic and going well one is more important than the other um, no, Little Women is a, a fabulous story about growing up and you see all the the personalities and the fine detail, the fine way people have to step through society and compare the freedom that you have as teenagers um, with the way that you have to behave in a certain way once you grow up and the way each sister manages that. I think it's really good. Wonderful. Well, I would say that is a pretty solid, um, you know, pretty solid recommendation from our team here. Little Women is out now and is a certificate PG. Bums on seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. New Zealand actor-director Taika Waititi arrived on the international scene with his vampire mockumentary What We Do in the Shadows, readily available to watch on Netflix and very funny, and quickly garnered both critical and big-budget chops with his offbeat family saga first, Hump for the Wilder People, and then the Marvel epic and maybe this personal person's favourite in the MCU universe, Thor Ragnarok. 
His latest film, however, seems like maybe his biggest risk. It's a comedy set towards the end of World War II, starring Taika Waititi himself as an imaginary version of Hitler. Are you ready for the best weekend ever? Yes, I am! Jojo, my old friend. Hi, Adolf. What's wrong, little man? They call me a scared rabbit. Jojo! Let them say whatever they want. People used to say a lot of nasty things about me. Oh, this guy's a lunatic. Oh, look at that psycho. He's gonna get us all killed. Jojo Rabbit tells the story of Johannes, or Jojo, played by newcomer Roman Griffin Davis, a 10-year-old who is such a key member of the Nazi youth movement that he even has Hitler as his imaginary friend. However, his feelings about his passion for the Nazi party are conflicted when he discovers that his mother, Scarlett Johansson, has been hiding a Jewish girl, Thomasine McKenzie, in their house for quite some time. Rowan, there's been a lot of talk in reviews about this, about obviously the difficulty in... Well, this is actually an adapted... I didn't even know this, but this is adapted from a much darker book called Caging Skies. And there has been a lot of talk about this shift in tone from out-and-out comedies to ITT to this more complex kind of idea of tragic comedy. Do you think that he manages to make this work and not maybe trivialise something that should not be trivialised? I think he makes the, the, the tragic comedy work. I, I mean, it's fair to say I think this isn't the funniest film you'll see uh, this month, even this week maybe. But I think he, I, for me, he nails the tone perfectly. I was talking to Bridget just before the show about how I think he's deliberately using the cadence and format of jokes, you know, that he's famous for to actually make you stop and think. that I don't think he actually intends for it to be riotously funny. Um, and I think tonally it matches some of his earlier work, the slightly dry, slightly sarcastic sense of humour. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed it, and I think, he, I think he nailed the tone perfectly for me. OK, Alistair, I, I feel that you might have a differing opinion. I don't know what leads me to think this, but, you know, go ahead. Please let me know what was your thinking about Jojo Rabbit. Um, so I think this might be the worst film of the past 12 months by quite some distance. Um, I think... Tell us why, Alistair. My issue with it is that it's... An inc- obviously, it's a comedy, so it's a very simplified version of the of World War Two, and it's seen through a child's eyes. But that in itself doesn't excuse the fact that a lot of the Nazis are just depicted as just sort of cartoonish and silly and whisper it, kind of good people deep down. It's a real, there were very fine people on both sides film, as as Donald Trump said after the, uh, after the, the Nazi walk uh, in America. And it's very much on that level and it's incredibly misjudged to me uh, in a way that it's very hard to sort of get across in a coherent thought. Um, but I am fascinated to see what the people who liked it, why they liked it, because for me, it's just, you can't make a film just saying the Nazis are good people underneath it all. They're just a bit silly. But underneath it all, you know, they're misguided. They'll be, they'll be fine in the end. Well, you know, there's, there, there, there has been years and there will be years of analysis of, you know, obviously this, this, this kind of thing because you can't... You know, 
yeah, you know, the entire German populace at the time, you know, under the Nazi Party, couldn't all be completely evil. I guess. I guess you're thinking about the Sam Rockwell character, the, right? The Sam Rockwell. <laughs> sorry, I'm just taking the. Yeah, Rowan yeah, wanted yeah, to yeah. speak. I'm taking that microphone right back. <laughs> so when three billboards uh, came out, there was a lot of discussion about Sam Rockwell's character, and he had this arc that many people thought was redemptive because he played a racist cop in that film, and lots of people thought that was very controversial. They shouldn't redeem him. I didn't think that film did redeem him. I thought it was very complex. Um, and I think that what this does is, at the outset, it shows him as like the leader of this Hitler youth camp. He's big into Nazi stuff. And as the film progresses, um, it basically just redeems him. And his character arc essentially ends with him, you know, saving a, a child's life, essentially. And that's just ridiculous. Uh, well, this is where I have to disagree. I think that's precisely the point he's making. Um, I, in the great philosophical work, Captain America, the First Avenger, uh, Stanley Tucci's character says that the thing that you have to remember is the first country that the Nazis invaded was Germany. And they, you know, I think the message here is that we can resist this kind of um, right wingification, this kind of hate by, you know, remembering that there are good people. No one is purely evil. Shades of grey. Right, moving, because we also have Henry and Vicky who both saw this as well. So let's start with you, Vicky. Yes. Did you, how, were you excited about this? Are you a Taika Waititi fan? Were, I, mean, I, I, I won't lie, I went in with huge expectations. We weren't entirely met, but weren't not met either, if you see what I mean. I kind of, I didn't love it, I didn't hate it, and I was left a little confused by it. But I did go, I did go in really wanting to love it. What was your expectation and what, you know, and what do you think? Expectation-wise, I think that, well, as soon as this came out, the festival circuit, people were, like, downplaying it, saying it was, like, they didn't enjoy it, didn't love to their standards. Because of that, I went in with pretty much no expectations and just thought, if I'm going to enjoy it, I will. And I did. I really thought that this matched, like, Watiti's, like, tonal, like, movie-making way, essentially. Um... I really have seen like Hunt for the Wilder People. I've seen what we do in the shadows, and I think it's matches. I think he's just progressing, and I really enjoyed this film. Like I, I, I don't want to argue, Alistair, but I think like no, do it. It's a new year. We've got loads of time to. This talk film about had this. a lot of wit and it had a lot of warmth to it, and I thought that like I know there's a lot of focus on the Nazi body, but what what this can be is a story about a boy who's like lost and he finds a friend, and I don't think there's anything not heartwarming about that. Okay, so the friend that he finds, because his mother, played by Scarlett Johansson, she's hiding a, a Jewish girl in the attic, uh, played by Thomasin McKenzie from uh, Leave No Trace. And presumably she's hiding because, obviously, the Holocaust is happening. The Holocaust, which is also should be pointed out, is not mentioned uh, in this film, which I also think is... In a, a bizarre choice for a film set during World War Two, um, but she's being hidden in the attic, you know, to you know, not be found by the authorities trying to kill her. And there's one moment in which she basically says to this child who is so against you know Jewish people. At one point, he sees uh, some dead Jewish bodies in the street and just says, yuck. Um, at one point, she just says to him, you're not a Nazi, you're just a kid who wants to be part of a gang. And it's just like, this is clearly stupid because he's clearly been brainwashed and he's clearly hateful. And this you can't make somebody who's a victim of this regime be a mouthpiece to support this child's redemption. That is just ridiculous I think that, and very just 
I'm not sure I would say clearly hateful. In fact, Henry, I'll turn to you because you've seen this as well. I was going to say that, of course, part of this film is a rather sweet and tender kind of teenage romance, if you like. You know, Jojo, who is 10, he... he finds um, Elsa in the attic and then, you know, he's, he's, you know he, he sort of questions her about all his ridiculous belief about Jews that he's been told by the Nazis and she sort of plays along but she also has this boyfriend, Nathan, who's away and, and there is these really lovely scenes where he kind of writes these letters from Nathan to her but really they're from him. Did you feel... Did you feel sort of transported by that story? Did you feel invested in it, Henry? Did you think it worked? Yeah, I mean, I thought the character worked. And I think partly due to Roman Griffin Davis was just very watchable for me. It's an hour and a half, and I think he carried the film wonderfully. Um, and the kind of, that relationship that he has with Elsa isn't perhaps the strongest point of the film, but there are other points of the film that I thought, I mean, for me, it wasn't necessarily a film strictly about the Nazi regime in particular. It was about being a young child during a time of mass hysteria and I think that it's kind of captured from the opening scene where he compares uh, Hitler to Beatlemania so he has the Beatles playing I want to hold your hand singing in German as there's pictures of the, like, the Fuhrer coming off aeroplanes and meeting like adoring crowds so for me it kind of while it didn't interrogate you know all of the mechanics of the regime it definitely transported me into the mindset of this child and thinking yeah like he just he just, yeah, as it says in the film, he wants to be part of a club and he wants to be, have a cause to be attached to. Well, it's telling a story, isn't it? I mean, it's impossible probably in an hour and a half running time to kind of encapsulate the entire World War II experience. Alistair, I'm looking at you, into one film. So I guess it's telling a story. I Like I say, I, I, it, it is based on a book and I would be really interested now to read Caging Skies, which I think is sold as like the inspiration for Jojo Rabbit as opposed to a direct, um, a direct adaptation. I think it'll be really interesting to look at that and see what Taika Waititi is taking with Because as far as I know, there is no imaginary friend, no imaginary Hitler friend what in the book. What if Drop Dead Fred was Hitler? That is the... That is the pitch. What if Drop Dead Fred was Hitler? I haven't thought about Drop Dead Fred for a long time. Yeah. Phoebe Cates and Rick Mail. That's a good film. Watch Drop Dead Fred instead. I was going to ask Rowan what he thought about Taika Waititi, you know, casting himself in that role. Did it add to it? Did you enjoy it? Because obviously it's a little bit like he played Korg so marvellously yeah. in Thor Ragnarok and he plays and I wish I can remember the name of the vampire that he plays in What We Do in the Shadows but he is, you know, he's obviously very fond of, of casting himself in his films yeah, and directing and himself. He's a talented enough actor. I think he sort of played the role well enough. I think it's important to remember as well that we're not talking about Ad the character of Adolf Hitler, we're talking about the character of Jojo Rabbit's own brain. Correct. You know, like it's not meant to be a depiction of Hitler in any kind of real sense. And, you know, I think it's easy to forget that sometimes. I do think that the film could have been made without that character and it wouldn't have suffered. Um, it's a, perhaps a little bit self indulgent to in cast himself in that film. I don't mind a bit of self indulgence most of the time. Um, but it. I liked sort of the contrast and the you know the story it was telling about Jojo's own maturing process throughout the whole film the way that he interacted with the uh, imaginary friend but yeah I'm not sure that the character of imaginary Hitler was actually entirely necessary okay Vicky this has come like you said, off the festival circuit, it got a lot of audience awards. It's being nominated against the nominated for six BAFTAs, I think, in, mm. including Scarlett, um, Scarlett Johansson. Did you think... I am famously not the biggest Scarlett Johansson fan, actually, <laughs> although I do love mm. her as Black Widow. But I thought... I enjoyed her. I, I thought her style suited this role a lot. What was your thinking about the adults in it? Scarlett Johansson, Sam Rockwell, Alfie Ella, and, of course, Rebel Wilson. Oh, the adults in the film. I really 
enjoyed Scarlett Johansson's character. I thought she was caring and then she was harsh to the Jojo character when she needed to be. I thought it was like a very warm environment that she kept him in. And then you just see a very, like a, a side to Scarlett Johansson that I haven't seen Marriage Story, but I haven't seen this, like her in this kind of role in quite a while. And I really think it suits her. And um, the other adults, like Sam Rockwell, I really enjoyed his character. I thought he brought. I thought <laughs> I thought he brought this like great kind of feeling like so when Jojo's lost like he kind of has someone he can still rely on until like the very end. I really appreciated that. I thought he displayed it excellently and I loved Alfie Allen as like his little second man. I thought that added it to it. I thought it added to the film. I, a lot of people thought that there was no need for that character, but I think it shows a part of Sam Rockwell in this film that not a lot of people catch on to and then maybe he didn't agree with like what he was doing as the Nazi but he sort of had to go along with it I don't know if anyone caught on to that bit as well but I really enjoyed the adults Rebel Wilson I don't really have a lot to say on apart from she was just kind of there <laughs> she <laughs> certainly was there and you know if you if you want your Rebel Wilson fix Cats is still in cinema <laughs> I was waiting for that <laughs> um, obviously we've, we've talked a lot about the comic comic aspects of this film but there is a, quite a dramatic shift in tone towards the end I won't say more than that um, probably following the scene where Stephen Merchant leads his which actually I found that one of the funniest scenes in the whole film, Stephen Merchant leading his team of Gestapo and the number of Heil Hitlers that have to be done between everybody. That was that, that really did make me laugh a lot. But there is a yeah, there's quite a shift in tone. Um and I that's when maybe when I felt that I was taken out from the film. I wasn't as emotionally involved in, in the film as I thought I would be at that point. Did anyone else have that problem? Did anyone cry in this film? Did anybody um, I mean I, I'm I know that some people have cried, but and this is just me being objective here. I I'm sort of surprised to hear that because the first half is just so flippant in turn that it doesn't make it easy to engage with the drama on a serious level. It's just sort of poking fun at the Nazi regime. And when it does become serious, I I wouldn't understand how you'd have the attachment to the story that would make you be moved by it. And without going into any further details, the third act and where it goes in the final 15 minutes between... Uh, the main character and the Elsa uh, in the attic is insanely misjudged uh, and actually just genuinely insane. Like, you... <laughs> uh, somebody else speak. Okay, Alice well, is frustrated. Yeah, Alice yeah. is frustrated. Moving on to something maybe, to, yeah, to finish off a little bit more yeah. positively, Henry. Sorry, oh. did you have something? Well, I was just going to make the comment about the sort of, the more sort of solemn tonal shift about, yeah, towards the end of the third the last third I thought that was like beautifully embedded into the film subtly with different like motifs that are embedded and I really ended up liking the Scarlett Johansson character and that relationship with has with Jojo really ended up yeah ended up really cathartic for me even though it, it presented the sort of horror alternative you know talking about motifs that was going to be my final question really I think like we said Taika forget tone so much let's talk about Taika Waititi as a sort of visual director is there anything because there's been a lot of talk about how this looks quite Wes Anderson uh, I was about to say yeah he's clearly been watching some Wes Anderson films recently <laughs> so do you think that as a director he has his own visual motifs or do you think he just is a bit of a chameleon who can then fall into it you know because like I say what he did with Thor Ragnarok was impressive and, and different from any other MCU thing but also maybe not necessarily 
spectacularly Taika Waititi. I don't know. Has anyone got any thoughts on that? I mean, if Hunt for the Wilder People was like a good homage to Wes Anderson, then this is just a lazy Moonrise Kingdom ripoff. And also yeah. just stylizing the Hitler youth as being like like a quirky Moonrise Kingdom type thing is also not the best idea, Taika. Uh, maybe, maybe don't make it look so cutesy. That's my that's my take on that. But these are also our children, not the you know the children are the ultimate victims of war anyway. So at the end of the day, you are looking at two ten year olds. And actually, the bit that I did found, I found the relationship between oh. Jojo and Yorkie. Yorkie. Oh come on, I you want, had to I be want moved Yorkie by that. To come home with me, I love Yorkie. <laughs> I want a spin off Yorkie. Yeah. I know I oh, a spin off Yorkie movie would be amazing. Spin off Yorkie would be the best. <laughs> well, I think on that note unless anyone has got any last last things they want to say on that note I think we, you know, we're moving towards a spin-off Yorkie which would be marvellous um, it's still on everywhere it has been nominated for lots of awards so critically it's still you know it's, it's, it's certainly being considered so I think it's going to be open for a while yet and it's a certificate 12A <laughs> A little burst of cream, the lovely Eric Clapton from the Gentleman soundtrack. So let's move on. We've got about 25 minutes left and we're going to be covering 1917. But first of all, let's take a listen to the Gentleman trailer. And if you smell smoke, it's because there's a fire. So you're going to have to stamp that out quickly. These people are going to clean house and you are part of that house. In the jungle, the only way a lion survives, not by acting like a king, by being the king. Oh. Brilliant! I've been waiting so long to be where I'm going. Oh, it's really warming up now, isn't it? The There's only one rule in this jungle. When the lion's hungry, he eats. So you killed someone? No, it was the gravity that killed him. Do we need those phones? Back in 1998, you may wonder where I'm going with this, but there is a point. Back in 1998, the UK was a simpler place. We were full of optimism for our new government and cheap carver-swilling flights to our neighbours in the EU. And into that, Cool Britannia swaggered Guy Ritchie's Lockstock and Two Smoking Barrels. So now we are over 20 years later. It's a very different world. And Guy Ritchie himself has been making family-friendly features the last couple, I think. King Arthur and um, obviously the live-action version of Aladdin. But he's decided to go back to his world of a mockany, cockney London gangsters um, in this new crime caper, The Gentleman. An impressive cast is headed up by Matthew McConaughey as Mickey Pierce, American marijuana lord looking to sell his lucrative business to the highest bidder with the help of his chief fixer, Ray, played by Charlie Hunnam. But what's this? Hugh Grant is here as an unscrupulous journalist looking for funding for his movie and prepared to blackmail for it. Add in a boxing club run by Colin Farrell, Chinese gangsters headed up by Henry Golding and aristocratic junkies and things are bound to get messy. 
Vicky, I don't know how much Guy Ritchie, how much of a fan of Guy Ritchie you are. This isn't got to go with, after all. <laughs> but do you think that this very sort of class-conscious crime shtick that he you know, started doing 22 years ago, does it still work for us in perhaps these more politically woke times? Um, so his older films... I am a Guy Ritchie fan. <laughs> I'll start off with that. Um, but his older films have a lot more grittiness to them. Um and I think his older casting has a lot more, like, um, like more British greatness to them as well. Um, I think there's still elements throughout of this film throughout that. Um, I really did enjoy the commitment to like the crime action comedy formula that's like made him the director he is. Um, but you can like still see the blockbuster film over it, and I think. You can't really say this is like a film for this time. I think what it is is what he's, what he's good at. And I think he's done that and he's done it in a blockbustery way and I still did quite enjoy it and I thought it was entertaining. Um, I think it shows London how London is in parts. It shows like the richer side and the downside to it, but that, that's all I have to say so far. Okay, well, Lorcan, we're welcoming Lorcan into the studio for the hey, first time. Hi, Lorcan. Um, I, <laughs> I only managed to watch two-thirds of this film because the print I was watching it on froze. And so a furious cinema, because it turns out that the elderly people I was watching it with are huge Guy Ritchie fans, a furious cinema were all forced to leave. So I didn't see the last third. Okay. So it's hard for me to Good know... Good for I'm, you. Sorry. <laughs> I'll be coming to you in a moment, Yossi. You're okay. like the Alistair of this review. But first, Lorcan, you... Very few people, as I know, really enjoyed his version of The Man from Uncle. This is Guy Ritchie, I think. It was critically yeah. panned. And in fact, he even puts a poster up in it in his film, I think, yeah. to remind everybody he made it. Um, you are a fan of that, though. Did you, and, and did you enjoy this? Did you think this was Guy Ritchie at his finest? Um, I think Guy Ritchie definitely has his strengths. I, I did like um, The Man from Uncle. The thing is, uh, re-watching his older films, he has this kind of schoolboy charm about his filmmaking, where it's kind of everything in the kitchen sink. And it just... I think when you're watching it, you let him get away with a lot of things. But this is, after all of his family-friendly stuff, he's revising a script he wrote a long time ago, um, updated it for a more modern audience. Um, but I think, firstly, I think uh, Matthew McConaughey's character plays this American drug baron in England who's trying to sell it to another American drug baron. And I think I have the suspicion that originally Matthew McConaughey's character must have been English because if you have an English drug baron then trying to sell it to Americans, uh, like an Asian market, you can have a, a statement about kind of like just a, a growing world and the, like the world kind of growing smaller and have a message about that. But the fact that Matthew McConaughey was American, it just muddled everything. Um, I think... So do you he, think that was a case of the casting going ahead, you know, so I maybe mean, I, altering I can't, it perhaps. I just feel like his... Yeah, maybe Matthew McConaughey caught wind of this character. And like bizarrely, Matthew McConaughey, I don't think, was in the same room as anyone else throughout the whole movie. I think he, <laughs> like, maybe he was in his contract, we're like, I'm not going to be in the same room as anyone. And I'll film my scenes in a week and I'll leave. I don't know. It seemed he's, he was a weirdly disparate part of everything that's happening in the film, I thought. I thought. Which is odd, because he was the centre, and he's the central role as well. In a way, yeah. He kind of dips well, in and out Well, he seemed to be to me, I had, didn't see the last um, half hour, of course, could have changed. <laughs> but, like, the strangest thing about The Gentleman is, I think, that, to do with the ratings. I think there's not really all that much in it um, to justify an 18 outside of they drop uh, a tremendous amount of profanity, which is just, it's childish, but not in that kind of, like, a likable child uh, like schoolboy charm like, like I say he used to have um, and there's lots of scenes where 
uh, like hoodlums are acting up and like some like they're they're like having a go at Colin Farrell and like they pull a knife and like oh and like in this climate like a hoodlum pulling a knife like this character is going to be like irredeemable and is going to get his comeuppance like the old Guy Ritchie films and then like Colin Farrell he's playing like a gruff Irishman with a beard he just kind of squirts vinegar at them and says or oh, you want to join my gang now and I'm like oh, okay well this it's not very cathartic it's not very satisfying and every time so a character has a chance to do something cool they don't do it, which like undermines them massively. So I was just kind of confused. But Hugh Grant steals the show. Absolutely worth watching for him alone. I would, thorough, yeah, I would completely agree with that. He was my favourite thing about this. Yossi, what was your favourite thing about it, if anything? I, well, I'm trying to think of what I liked about the film. And there's not really much I liked. I actually kind of enjoyed Colin Farrell. I thought he was entertaining. Hugh Grant, yeah, yeah, he did that thing. It was good. Um... <laughs> I, I took real issue with this film because for several reasons. I think that as a kind of crime action film, it was sort of trying to be entertaining, but I wasn't entertained because I could see all the twists coming from a mile off. I knew... And, and, and you're meant to be rooting for certain characters, but I wasn't rooting for them. I think my biggest problem with this film was I didn't like anyone. Like, I, they're supposed heroes and supposed villains, and I, I just was not a fan of anyone. And, you know, the, another thing that I took issue with was it's trying to make some kind of commentary but that's lost on me it's trying to say something about the rich and the, and the and the poor and these different classes and it just didn't feel real it didn't feel authentic and that it's making these it's it's talking about communities there was casual racism thrown in here there i couldn't work out if that was played for laughs or not because to me it was just racism I, I was just not a fan of it and all those little things put together put me off the entire film unfortunately well that's i mean i know i think i think that's absolutely fair enough vicky i would say that what guy Ritchie didn't do so he didn't do any of that he didn't do maybe as much of his visual flashiness that he used to do back mm. in the days of snatch and lockstock um but then he was balancing it. I mean, it's a pretty complex story, and this is a big cast. I guess a, a, a film like this kind of lives and dies, really, on whether or not the story makes sense and whether or not you're invested in it, and yeah. were you either of those things? Well, I was invested in the story, but I will admit that the pacing did lag, and then if you weren't paying attention for maybe like a minute or so, if you kind of just drifted, you were lost. Like, you don't know what's just happened. And that's why I think Hugh Grant's role was so prominent because he's relaying the story. That's why he's there. And that was so helpful to have him there. But he was more than that. He was a really great character. And I think he's choosing his roles really well at the minute, (laughs) I'll add. The film relied on Hugh Grant too much for me. I think Hugh Grant was its one selling point. And the rest of it just kind of was... I would I disagree a little bit. I, I thought he was I mean, I thought he was great, but I do think that Charlie Hunnam brought a certain charm to his role, Lorcan. He was like a good counterbalance because uh, Hugh Grant is so over the top in this film. He needed yeah. something uh, I don't want to call Charlie Hunnam boring, but maybe that's why they cast him as the opposite to Hugh Grant because I find him a bit stale. I thought um, his Geordie accent made up for whatever boring I think I think his accent I very much enjoyed his kindly northeast accent. Like I said, well, don't they prove that it's you know it's one of the most comforting accents there is? So to have this kind of yeah this this north, I, and then actually it made the, the, there was a scene where he does really pull out some violence out of the bag, and it made it quite shocking because up until then you hadn't. No, he's, al- he's always he's always got this like foreboding 
aura around him. He never really does anything. But if we're talking about the cast, I think Henry Golding needs to find himself a new agent because he's like such an up and coming yeah. like actor. And then oh, we're gonna play. You're gonna play this character where you um, like traffic in Asian immigrants in freight train cars. And uh, that to me felt a little awkward oh, after the news story it's, before it's like, Christmas. That I, it's like such an yeah. inter- incidental shot they could have taken out as well. Yeah. Um, and then. Oh, and you're also going to uh, sexually assault a woman. Like I'm watching a Michael Winner film, and like, no, like Henry, choose choose something. Else. I must have missed that bit. I did enjoy Michelle Dockery, Dockery as Matthew McConaughey's and uh, Matthew McConaughey's wife. And I was just going to say, Yossi, I think that Hugh Grant steals it because, to be honest, Matthew McConaughey to me, I'm with Lorcan on this. It felt like he was just. Fo- I did not feel he was committed to this role at all, and he can be so good and so charming, and he can really light up a screen. And for me, it just left me left you know left it dead. But I think in general, saying we like. Hmm? I said he's just picking up his paycheck. He's I, he did what he had to do. Felt a little bit like that. Then, yeah, it's hard to react when to there's Texas. no one else in the room with you. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but I think you're generally saying it is. It's it's entertaining. It is a certificate eighteen, as Lorcan said. I was also slightly confused by that, although yeah. I don't know if it, it it unveils a whole load of violence at the end. Yeah. But it is mostly, I think, the language. So if you are easily offended by a lot of language, I would not go and see this. But it's out everywhere, and it's a certificate eighteen. Bums on Seats on Cambridge 105 Radio. Right, so we are almost at the end of the show. Well, actually, we've got 20 full minutes because we've got our big release to talk about, which only came out on Friday the 10th, and it is fresh off its surprise Golden Globes win. So let's take a listen to the trailer for Sam Mendes' 1917. You have a brother in the 2nd Battalion. Yes, sir. They're walking into a trap. Your orders are to deliver a message calling off tomorrow morning's attack. If you fail, it will be a massacre. Let's talk about this for a minute. Why? We've got orders to cross here. That is the German front line. If we're not clever about this, no one will get to your brother. I will. There's only one way this ends. So, Sam Mendes' 1917 landed in our cinemas last night. Fresh off, as I said, it surprised Golden Globes win, where I think it... I think it was. I think people were surprised it beat out The Irishman for both best film as a drama and best director. Um, he's used this virtuoso technique, Sam Mendes, to give us an apparent real-time and one-take version of April the 6th, 1917, in World War One. George McKay and Dean Thomas Chapman play our heroes, who are picked almost at random to deliver a message across the trenches. An attack must be called off by dawn as the English battalion are walking into an almost certain trap by the Germans. Lorcan, a lot of the reviews and a lot of the discussion about this film is obviously about the technical aspects of it. Does it manage to sweep us along emotionally as well? No. Um, I think it's a very um, it's a very expensive, well-crafted film, but for a film without any story or characters, you have to get the technicals flawless. And I didn't find, I didn't think that the film was technically flawless. Like, there were moments where I was quite jarred out of it by use of... Um, 
by use of the green screen or just like trying to catch edits because there are there are a lot of edits for a film that's supposed to be like giving the impression that it's all one take. Um, I would describe the film as one of those at Disneyland. What do you call them? The um, the slow dark rides where you just mm-hmm. you just kind of saddled in and then you you're just kind of going along. And you're like, oh, there's a dead body. Oh, oh, someone's shooting at me. Oh no, I'm in the next room. It's fine. Um, so I completely emotionally disengaged from me, which is a shame because like there's a lot of moments that really like the bit that's in the trailer where he's running across the field and explosions going off. Like if there had been a story <laughs> behind that shot, oh man, that would have been great. But it's just a shame that there wasn't. I was on the edge of my seat at that point, but maybe that's just me. Um, Rowan, you were talking. You well, you, you yourself and Bridget were talking a lot about the technical and sound mm. aspects of this, and obviously it's shot by you know, the wonderful Roger Deakins and our cinematographer here. Yeah. How did you find it visually and hourly? Um, well, I... Visually, I was, I'm, I was quite impressed with it because it it started off not particularly over the top. You know, the, the lighting was beautifully muted, you know. Um, Bridget and I were talking about how they had to wait for cloud cover every time they wanted to shoot anything because it was all, well, mostly natural light. And then there were some incredible moments... Uh, there's a moment in a ruined town with flares and fire that w- was just magical. And I would, I think I have to say, I come down on liking this film for that one scene on its own because it was just beautiful. The sound design was very subtle. Um, uh, I don't want to steal Bridget's line here, but she told me something shocking about the the voices, you know, the spoken dialogue recorded, that they only had to re-record two lines of dialogue for the whole film, which I find just mind-boggling given the um, technical challenges that that must have presented. Um, So on a technical level, I I found it very interesting. But what I found, I sort of agree with Lorcan, that emotionally it only made me more aware that I was watching a movie. It it took me completely out of the story and I was only ever thinking of the technical side of things. Bridget, did you find that as well or did you manage to move yourself back into the narrative? Uh, When I watched the film, I found it quite... I I found it really hard to engage with the characters because they had... uh, A lot of it's to do with being in the army and you have to have the flat face and you have to do the orders and you have to talk like this and not really show your heart because um, you're English and it's 1917. Um, So that was quite difficult to engage with on an emotional level through the film. Um, One of them in particular has, has a very flat affect to him and doesn't share much about his background and it's only when he thinks he's on his own and he's, he's he can't be seen by anyone and then his face opens up and you can really see the emotions and the fear and the desperation that he's going through at that moment uh, so by the end of the film I think um, having had a day to sleep on it I now feel a lot more um, involved with the characters than I did when I was watching it Alistair, I, I kind of, I, I must say, I kind of disagree. I thought, George, so George Mackay, who we know from Captain Fan, well, I knew mostly from Captain Fantastic, the um, Viggo Mortensen film from a couple of years ago, and Dean Charles Chapman, who I only know as Tommen from Game of Thrones. <laughs> they, obviously, the first half of the film, it is really just the two of them. And they're both relatively unknown, I would say, but we do have this kind of parade of incredibly well-known British <laughs> actors who everyone have seen in the trailers, from Colin Firth to Benedict Cumberbatch to Mark Strong popping up to Andrew Scott, obviously, Fleabag's Hot Prince, uh, Hot Priest, some better than others. But literally, their screen time is minimal. Do you think 
that was a good thing or did it just make you think, oh, look, here's Colin Firth. Oh, look, here's Andrew Scott. It is incredibly distracting and it only uh, adds to my theory that this movie just feels more like a video game, watching somebody play a video game than it does a film. Um, And it doesn't help with the one-take conceit because as the one-take is happening, you're basically just watching people complete, like, Getting past all of these obstacles in real time, like oh, they've got to, they've got to walk over the trenches. Oh, they've, they've got to, they've got to get, get the message across. And each time they complete one challenge, then one of these British actors appears and then tells them the next challenge. And it's like a cutscene in a video game that you have to watch before you can get to the next level. And the, the film is weirdly structured in like a video game in a way that is very distracting, very basic, and just very lazy in a way that makes it such a surprise that the film is being praised for more than just its technical things because I can see that, you know, the Roger Deakins cinematography, fantastic as always, because, you know, Roger Deakins, the greatest living cinematographer. Uh, (laughs) But aside from the technical stuff, there's not really anything engaging with the drama. It's just the standard war drama, but told like you're watching somebody playing a Call of Duty game. Henry, are you going to be the one sole voice of these five voices who's going to make me feel like I'm not losing my mind? As I mean, I literally, I cried all the way home in the car after this film. I was incredibly moved by it. And I thought, actually, that George McKay's kind of very deadpan face, that's, that's you know, this guy's been at war in the trenches for three years. He's probably going to be fairly traumatised and a little... And I, I, I just and I thought their chemistry together, both he and Dean Charles Chapman, I thought that was very sweet and very touching. So, Henry, am I completely out on a limb here, or have you got anything good to say? I'm afraid I do agree with Alistair pretty full heartedly. <laughs> he took the words right out of my mouth. It it's good. Exactly. This makes up for our Jojo Abbott disagreement. Yeah, exactly. uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the whole the one shot thing, I found incredibly gimmicky and distracting. It felt like they could they were doing it just because they could do it and they wanted to do it. There was no real purpose for it to be done. And actually the most impactful scene that I found in the whole thing was when they did cut to black. There's a scene about halfway through where he has to wrestle with a German soldier and it cuts to black. And I thought that's the most impressive scene in the whole film. Well, otherwise it would have been a 10-hour film, wouldn't it? If we'd had it in real, yeah. real time, we would have yeah. been seen there, I guess, because they, they, they're given their, their um, instructions. It's going to be by the next door or whatever. But Yeah. I, I, I just want to jump in on that, actually. It, it frustrated me a little bit that the promotional talk around this film went all in on this being done in one take. I mean, Sam Mendes is on camera talking about how they had to do it in one take. And it isn't. There's a a cut. There's an actual cut. I can understand cheating cuts. That's fine. Make it appear as if it's all one take. Great. There's an eight-hour cut. You can't go from evening to night to morning in two hours. I think the idea is it's meant to be a continuous shot, as in the camera moves steadily and it's always uh, fluidly following Mm. the people. But in the, but in the, in the interviews I've seen with him, he they very specifically talk about the technical challenges of doing it all in one take. And the reason they wanted to do that was uh, their 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 artistic vision was mm-hmm. so that you'd really feel connected with the ca- with the characters. Yeah. You'd mm-hmm. stay with them all the time, and that's the reason they um, put so much effort into the um, sound editing. Because when you've got them running across the muddy field, uh, breathing heavily, all you can hear is their muddy footprints sliding mm. around and them breathing. You can't hear the camera operators. You can't hear the boom operators because you've got... Um, and they, they took so much time in able to take everybody else's footsteps out and all the breathing that you hear is is them. But did it work? Yeah. I think that's it's a classic substitution for... The hardest thing to do is get your story right and get your characters right. 
So you can come up with any list of reasons to um, distract from the story and the plot and the story and the characters if you don't have those elements, the most fundamental elements. As soon as the film opens, um, D uh, Dean Charles Chapman's character just says, oh, my mum's just bought some puppies. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, no. Oh, my heart just, like, sank. Like, I'm going to have two hours of this. I'm like, the whole emotional thrust of this film is based on the fact that his mum's just bought some puppies. Uh, like, and he's like, oh, he may as well have said, I'm retiring next week. Yeah. <laughs> all the dialogue was so clunky. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I, I do, I agree that the, but for me, I think I was kind of whisked away by the whole thing anyway. And I actually found that scene, the famous scene from the trailer where he is running along the trench at the end. I was, I was on the edge of my seat. I was nearly cheering. I was cheering. I was crying. <laughs> I was, in, I feel like I've had an entirely different experience. I think he might have done. I think it's funny that the thing, as I was thinking about it, I mean, all films suffer from this is that if you know that a character's in a particular scene you've seen in a trailer, there's no peril for that character during the rest of the film, right? And for the, some reason, trailer, it was though. so heavily amplified by this single take conceit for me that, you know, there, they because they were never off screen, there was never any peril. And I think one, I think again, and this, 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 I will agree with. I think one of the problems again by casting all these massive names and putting them all in the trailer is, you know, perfectly well because obviously one of the biggest names in the trailer doesn't turn up until literally the last two minutes of the film. So yeah. you're a bit like, oh, when's he going to turn? But when, when's that one going to pop up? But um, so yeah, I, I, I agree. But I, I don't know. I, 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 I think. I think it was a brave... It's his first war film, I believe, since Jarhead. Did, yeah, you know, yeah, and, yeah. and obviously it's a very different film, but I really... I think Jarhead was kind of an underappreciated Sam Mendes piece of work, and maybe this will end up being... Well, not underappreciated by awards and critics <laughs> and myself, but underappreciated... History will judge you uh, correct, Emma, I think. But, I mean, you are right about... Because the, there are some <laughs> exhilarating moments, like that trench moment that you discussed that's in the trailer where he's running across is really well handled in the film. There were lots of exciting moments, but it is just... The one-take conceit just means that there's lots of walking around in real time from one challenge to the next, and it's just hard to stay engaged. My thing watching it is... I have a feeling it's going to be one of those films that people, most people will see at the cinema and generally like it, and then a few months later will watch again at home and realise it doesn't stand up when they aren't watching it with all the bells and the whistles of the cinema. It's like when uh, 10 years ago when everybody saw Avatar in 3D and everybody was like, this is the best thing ever. We were all duped because the 3D was that good. I and fell then we got... asleep in Avatar. <laughs> you you did well, saying. because then a few months later, we all everybody watched Avatar back at home, just in standard 2D, and they're like, this is actually awful, isn't it? <laughs> and... Is there like, not an argument, though, to be said that we should be watching films that should be seen on a big screen? The cinema is, particularly now with Netflix and, and streaming and all the rest, this is an art, this is a form of art that we should be watching the well, cinema. Well, that is true, but also, if it can't stand up on the small screen as much as it can on the big screen, you know, we shouldn't be just praising the technical accomplishments. It should be a good film as well as being technically accomplished. I was uh, realising earlier that there's a genre of films that I go and see in the IMAX because they're amazing mm. and I enjoy them and then I never watch them yeah. again. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. 1917. <laughs> Don't well, yeah. War. War and space. Yes. <laughs> well, I think we have to wrap it up there. Like I say, I feel like I was a, I feel like I was the sole voice of, of you know persuasion. But I'm saying go and see it. You will be emotionally you will be emotionally drawn along. It is worth watching so much. 
like yeah, do go to see on a bigger screen. Bells and whistles. Go watch yeah. the big screen and then forget about it. <laughs> Fair enough. Why not? Um, that's all we've got time for today. As ever, this past hour is going to be repeated at 2 p.m. tomorrow, and then it'll be tidied up into our podcast, which will be readily available, I should think, from the beginning of next week. You can either download or stream it from the Cambridge 105 Radio website page, or you can download it from wherever you like to choose to take your websites from. Web, sorry, websites, podcasts, whichever website you like to take your podcast from. We're going to be back in a fortnight's time, which will be Saturday, January the 25th. But to play us out, please enjoy the wonderful David Bowie, Bowie's version of Heroes, sung in German language from the end of Jojo Rabbit. Gibt uns eine Chance, doch können wir sie dann für immer und immer. Und wir sind dann Herren, 